Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Bonnie Lee, the host of Writing About Crime. I'm here to talk about Canadian true crime cases, searching for the disconnect that makes a case different than it appears on the surface. This is part three of the Tina Fontaine case. It's been a sad run covering Tina's story, but it's a very important one. Her case was the flame that ignited the government to begin the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry, a much-needed investigation into the root causes of our country having a disproportionate number of Indigenous Canadian women and girls going missing and never found, or worse, found murdered. I'm talking about Tina's case and the far-reaching effects of her murder. So please, don't leave me. A jury found Raymond Cormier not guilty in the murder of 15-year-old Tina Fontaine on February 22, 2018. She weighed 72 pounds at the time of her murder, so tiny. And it made the brutal death seem even more gruesome because her stature was that of a young child. Raymond, then 56 years old, sat staring face forward silently without making any noticeable facial reaction to the verdict. Not silent were the family and their supporters. They gasped and yelled out loud. Tina's mom was heard yelling, Fuck you if you think you can get away with this. He was led out of the courtroom, looking straight ahead, while Thelma Favel, Tina's great aunt and her main caregiver as she grew up, screamed, My baby, my baby, my baby. People gathered around her and helped her rise up and walk, and she broke down, almost as if the verdict was as painful as losing Tina all over again. She was overheard claiming, I hope you're happy in hell. The news of Raymond Cormier's verdict spread quickly. There were Indigenous leaders, reporters, and other community leaders waiting outside of the courtroom. They were prepared to make and report comments about the verdict. Others were on Twitter commenting on the result, as well as wishing Tina Fontaine's family and friends support. University of Manitoba professor Nigan Sinclair said that Canada never fails to disappoint. Injustice is a way of Indigenous life. Indigenous leaders were vocal that the child welfare system, Winnipeg police, and Canadian society had all failed Tina Fontaine, and it's not acceptable, asking, where is the justice and reconciliation? Another very public denouncement of the verdict came from a clearly frustrated Sue Caribou. She is a well-known advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women in Manitoba. She stated she was devastated and stormed away from the law courts building. In the heated moment, her pain and anger came out in full force when she was asked to give her thoughts on the verdict. Not once do our people ever get justice. I have 10 murder, 2 missing, and to this day we don't have justice. We know that Indigenous women and girls in Canada report rates of violence, including domestic abuse and sexual assault, up to three and a half times higher than non-Indigenous women. 
many people very angry, many people with a lot of grief, just saying that they hope Tina Fontaine's death brings more attention to the plight of exploited Aboriginal women. Kim? Now, Cam, on Thursday, the Prime Minister again rejected calls for a national inquiry into missing and murdered Aboriginal women. Uh, what do people there have to say about that? A lot of anger over that, Kim. Everyone that we talked to brought it up. We, we didn't ask. They brought it up. They, they're very disappointed with the federal government's stance on this. They feel as though the federal government isn't taking the issue seriously, that it's just looking at this as any other crime, that there's nothing really specific to, to do here. So that's the perception here in the community. A lot of people, uh, as I say, upset with the Prime Minister's remarks, and a lot of people hoping that this example being so stark the example of a 15-year-old girl uh, killed and dumped in a river, that this will draw more public attention, that this will keep the issue in the in the spotlight. In fact, Manitoba's Premier Greg Selinger, also very critical of the Prime Minister this week, saying that he's going to bring up the issue again with the country's premiers. You'll remember last year, of course, the country's premiers unanimously came out with a statement urging the federal government to have that inquiry. Indeed. All right. Thanks so much, Cameron. Fontaine's death had resulted in a grassroots movement to help missing and endangered Aboriginal women in Canada. One of Fontaine's relatives, Nahani Fontaine, posted on Facebook on December 10th that she and another representative were in Ottawa to meet with the Canadian ministers. They were there to talk about unsolved cases of missing Aboriginal women. On December 9th, Canada's Liberal government announced that an inquiry had been set up to investigate the unsolved cases not long after the verdict in the Tina Fontaine case. The public was outraged about Tina's unsolved murder, along with the announcement of the inquiry. The fallout was still regularly reported in the news, which made it difficult for the family to move on. People didn't necessarily have faith that the investigation into Tina's murder resulted in any accountability for things that had become apparent during the trial. The two officers that had contact with Tina before she disappeared were suspended for their actions and eventually left the city police force. But not before more evidence of the long reach of Tina's death had on everyone involved. One of the officers had already been weeks into his career with the WPS when they encountered Tina. He fell into a severe depression and blamed himself for her passing. He was reinstated to his position after the suspension, and shortly after he returned to work, he was investigated for stealing property from the police service and attempting to resell items like police service-issued footwear and flashlights online. After searching his home, he was found in possession of more than 20 pairs of police-issued tactical boots, a bulletproof vest, a WPS plain clothes badge, brass knuckles, tactical flashlights, and a tactical shotgun. They also found grenade simulators, smoke grenades, and a parachute flare belonging to the Canadian Armed Forces, where Hool was a reservist. The First Nations man had been raised by his grandparents and had no prior criminal record. He was said to have been humiliated and had no explanation for his actions. He was taken to court on charges of theft. 
In the summer of 2015, shocking news was released again involving a close family member of Tina Fontaine. A shocking twist tonight in a human trafficking case alleged to have happened inside a West End apartment. Three people have been arrested and a fourth man is wanted after a teenage girl was allegedly held captive and forced into doing sex work. SCTV's Josh Crabb reports 15-year-old Tina Fontaine spent time at the same apartment before her death. This apartment building on Furby Street is where the Crown alleges a 17-year-old girl who cannot be named was held against her will and forced into the sex trade. Two men, Jesse Thomas and Eric Werfel, and the tenant, Janine Fontaine, were arrested last week on charges of human trafficking. A warrant has been issued for the arrest of a fourth man, Clinton Werfel. Details of the case emerged this week in court during a bail hearing for Fontaine. The first cousin of 15-year-old Tina Fontaine, a family member, told CTV News that Tina spent time at the same apartment now at the center of the human trafficking case before her death. According to the Crown, the 17-year-old victim was brought to the apartment and told by Thomas she is going to start making him money in the sex trade. The victim is then forced into the sex trade through threats to her family and through physical violence, said Crown attorney Alana Littman. The victim tried to leave but was stopped and photos were taken on Janine Fontaine's phone and the images were advertised online where clients responded to engage in sex with the girl. The Crown says between May 20th and June 1st, the victim provided sexual services in exchange for money to what she believes to be at least more than 20, upwards of 50 men. The victim was eventually given enough trust to leave the apartment on her own. She went to police and the arrests were made. And Josh Crabb joins us now from outside that apartment on Furby Street. Josh, what is Tina Fontaine's family saying about all of this? Uh, Gord, I spoke to her uh, great aunt, Thelma Favell, uh, who was absolutely shocked to learn of these details. Uh, she helped raise Janine Fontaine, who is her great niece and can't believe the charges she's now facing. Janine Fontaine was released on bail while her co-accused was kept in custody. This was a time where Janine was reportedly struggling with the death of Tina's father. And Tina's widely reported death and murder trial combined with the death of Tina's father that was her uncle. She was dealing with severe depression and using drugs and alcohol to relieve her pain and suffering. Now she was getting into legal trouble and it became clear she was going to have to change her ways or she would continue on living the life of an eventual tragedy like so many in the Fontaine family. In April of 2017, Tina's sister Sarah was reported missing. She had been very close with Tina and people were very concerned about her whereabouts. Her and Tina had been inseparable, and after losing Tina so soon after the girls had recently lost their father, she had lost everything. So Sarah Fontaine got pregnant after Tina was killed and had been living in a Winnipeg area home with her new baby. She had been attending counseling for about a year. She had been reported missing a week before this notice and then reappeared back at home, saying she wanted to stay there rather than in the city. Thelma Favel thought she was not ready, 
it was better for her to continue her counseling in the city and be near amenities that she may need in case she needed help with the baby. Great Aunt Thelma called police to notify them Sarah was safe and the girl and her baby were taken into new, separate homes in the Winnipeg area. On the following Monday, Thavel learned that Sarah had disappeared again. She was located safe a few days later, but it was apparent that the effects of Tina's murder were very widespread. The RCMPs had to tell me right on my birthday, my daughter passed on. Another tragedy has struck for the family of Tina Fontaine, the 15-year-old girl from Seguin First Nation, whose high-profile case helped launch the national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Tina's family now dealing with more heartbreak as they search for answers in the death of Tina's 25-year-old cousin, Kayla Arkinson. We're angry. I'm really angry. Just over a week ago, Arkinson was on her way home after celebrating her cousin's graduation. It was late at night and she was a short distance away from the steps of her front door, but never made it. It was just behind me here on this stretch of Highway 11 in Seguin First Nation where Arkinson's body lay. Manitoba RCMP say she was struck not once, but twice in the early morning hours of June 24th. Just before 4 o'clock in the morning, police received a report of a vehicle pedestrian collision. The 48-year-old male driver had stopped at the scene and contacted police. According to RCMP, the man struck Arkinson as she lay on the highway. But it wasn't this collision that killed her. Police believe she'd been hit earlier in the night by another vehicle. We had to find out through social media that she was struck struck twice. You know, like, no mother should have to look on a, on a Facebook, someone's Facebook account and find out that her daughter was struck twice. Arkinson leaves behind two young children, both under the age of eight. I got a lot of anger built up watching her kids, watching all the family. They could have stopped, you know, they could have, she could have been saved. And they just left her there like a dog. She was a beautiful, happy, bubbly person. You know, if you knew her, she'd make you laugh. Everyone who knew her, she always made you smile. I'm not gonna give up. I'm still here. I'm just gonna, always gonna be here until justice is served. On February 23rd, the officer that failed to notice the missing person flag on Tina Fontaine and was later charged with theft of the Winnipeg Police Service's property appeared in court. When the judge gave out the verdict in the case, he addressed the connection of his distress over his involvement in the Tina Fontaine case, and he advised him, what happened was a mistake, but it also is not just your mistake. The judge continued, it also doesn't put the responsibility of everything that happened to Tina Fontaine on your shoulders, and you need to come to grips with that if you haven't already. Police officers are often called upon to make judgment calls on the street, and you and your partner made a judgment call that turned out to go the wrong way. He was given a conditional discharge, which included 18 months of probation and 75 hours of community service. To the Indigenous community, this was a hard blow. But this was an Indigenous officer. It was not a case of racism in the system working against their people while protecting those that should have been held accountable to Tina. It was more just another sad example of the far-reaching tragedy around Tina's death. 
Still suffering badly was Tina Duck, Tina's mother. She was finally speaking with the media about her daughter's case and claimed her murdered daughter's aunts and cousins knew Raymond Cormier. This was shocking news. Valentina was disgusted. Why would they let my daughter hang around with an older guy like that and say they love her and want her to stay with them? She was upset and confused. Yet, it seemed that because she was struggling with her addictions and having a hard time during the period where Tina was murdered, she may not have been in the loop about all of the events and who was aware of what during the time Tina was murdered. She was under intense scrutiny from not only the public, but her own family at times. Some accused her of influencing her daughter into the lifestyle that she was leading after her younger sister left Winnipeg to return home. Tina had been staying with her mother at the time and she left after meeting her boyfriend, Cody. Valentina's own son claimed in an interview with the APTN network that it was his mother that introduced Tina into the world of drugs and escorting. Valentina admits she did work the streets when she was younger, but she couldn't understand why people continued to blame her for what happened. Years after Tina's death, she was still struggling with the not guilty verdict given in Tina's case. I just want to heal and wish I could see my baby again. She would have been 19. Duck was shaken by the verdict. I was mad. I was upset. Oh, everybody let her down. The not guilty verdict sent shockwaves across the Indigenous community. Winnipeg police also expressed their disappointment in the acquittal. The Fontaine investigation is classified as open. However, police say they are not seeking any further suspects. But I'm not going to stop. I'm going to find out who did this. Somebody can't just beg a 15-year-old separate her and not do anything. Somebody has to know something. I just wish they would speak out so I can stop hurting. Should have opened everybody's eyes then. But it takes one little 15-year-old to open everybody's eyes. And <laughs> I ask why. I want justice for my daughter. I want somebody to find who did this or who's talking about it. Somebody out there must know something. They're just not saying. Whoever put my daughter in the river has to come out and say something sooner or later. Janine Fontaine who had been convicted on lesser charges in her human trafficking case, had begun to clean up her act. She was off of the drugs and focused on being able to raise her three children. At 29, she was living with her boyfriend, Monte Bull, her mom, Lana, and her brother, Vincent Chuck Fontaine. There were reportedly others coming and going, but they were the primary residents at the Aberdeen Street home in Winnipeg's North End. Janine was trying to keep things on the straight and narrow, 
which was especially difficult after dealing with the high-profile death of her cousin. It had been a setback in her life's journey, but she was determined to move on with her life. In the early hours of Tuesday, March 14th, Janine was found deceased in her home where she had been shot in the back of the head before the house that she resided in was burned down. She was rushed to hospital, but perished the next morning after being taken off life support. Janine's brother was also home at the time and heard the gunshot, but he escaped unharmed. Police wouldn't say whether her murder was targeted or a random attack, but they indicated that they would be looking into connections to drugs and gangs and Janine's own associates. The home she was living in was known to police because it was visited on numerous occasions for a variety of matters. Just three months prior, a 22-year-old man was shot in the lower body during a party at the home. He survived the injury, but it was just one of several incidents at that address. It was in a rough part of town and had many occupants residing inside. Neighbors in the area were leery of the residents, one saying, in the morning the door would open and, you know, a bunch of young men would roll out, bringing bicycles and backpacks out. They'd ride away for the day and then come back at night. It's disturbing. There's children in the neighborhood. These things, you assume these things happen in the middle of the night, but it happened from what I can tell first thing in the morning. A shooting in May of the year previous happened on a Saturday afternoon. She said, it makes you wonder, like, is it safe to go out in your own yard? All that was determined for certain was that the home was lit on fire deliberately and that likely Janine was not the one targeted. Her mother was left homeless after the fire with nothing but the clothing on her back. She no longer had any furniture or belongings. She didn't even have a place to go. Her only focus was concentrating on the death of her daughter. The community was in shock and an investigation into the case began promptly. The inquiry ordered by the federal government was moving along. People who were working on the research and organizing the hearings were leaving and being replaced in notable frequency yet with little explanation. It seemed the investigation into the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls was kind of struggling at that point. Lawyer and Ashanabe Métis law professor Amy Kraft from the University of Ottawa took on the position of director of research for a time in the National Inquiry. After stepping away from her position, she said that the truth is that there is no real justice for Indigenous people. The systems that purport to bring us justice fail us over and over, time and again. Tina's case is a stark illustration of that terrible reality. Yet Indigenous youth were still seemingly hopeful. Many worked on art and special tributes to Tina Fontaine and other missing and murdered girls. Trinity Harry and Joseph Ginter, two then grade 12 students at the R.B. Russell Vocational School, spent more than 300 hours 
welding a red dress hanging from a tree. It turned out as an amazing tribute in honor of Tina to the murdered and missing movement. It has seven branches. The pieces represent the seven teachings, and on the branches, each have leaves with the provinces where girls have gone missing. The red dress has the message, you are not forgotten, along the bottom. The trial for the murder of Janine Fontaine began on January 7, 2019. Christopher Brass and Jason Meyer sat charged with manslaughter and both pled not guilty. Over the course of the week-and-a-half-long Court of Queensbrench trial, a jury was told that Brass and Mueller went to Janine's home with a third man, Malcolm Miles Mitchell. They were there to collect a drug debt from Monte Bull, Janine's boyfriend. At the time of trial, he was in prison, and he refused to be transported in to testify, stating, he didn't see the point because I wasn't there. The next day, he agreed to travel to the law courts and testify in trial. Monte Bull testified that he did, in fact, deal drugs out of the Aberdeen home and that he was on the hook for a drug deal gone wrong two weeks before the murder. Bull said he got a call from a man he knew named Jay, telling him someone who worked for him had been selling fake drugs out of the house. The informant told Bull that someone had sold Jay's girlfriend fake methamphetamine. Monte Bull told Jay that he would take care of it, and he paid back about half of the debt, which was worth about 17 points of methamphetamine. A point of methamphetamine is usually worth about $10 on the street. Bull said that there was no discussion about when he would pay off the rest of the debt, and then later claimed he ran into Jay's girlfriend. In that discussion, he said that she told him not to worry about it, so he thought the debt was squashed. I believe what he meant was quashed, and I want to clarify something here. Monte is the boyfriend of a young indigenous lady that was trying to get herself off of drugs and clean up her life after she fell off the wagon when her cousin was involved in a high-profile murder. She had previously worked as a sex worker for years and suffered with addictions issues, but she was doing better now, until Tina's body was pulled out of the Red River in a duvet filled with rocks, and the accused made it home in time for lunch after trial. That drove her back into a bad lifestyle, where Monte got her involved in abducting a young girl and harboring her in their apartment so they could sell her for sex online. And so... She lost custody of her three children. In order to get them back and clean up her life, she moved in with Monte, her mother, and her brother Vincent. They were living in the Aberdeen home when she was shot in the back of the head and left in a burned-out house because Monte didn't know how to balance his meth checkbook. When the time comes for him to testify, and hold the killers responsible for murdering his girlfriend and mother of three. Monte Ball doesn't see the point of appearing in court because he was not there when his customers came and killed her for the $90 instead of him. 
I'm very pleased that he changed his mind the next day. It was the right thing to do. I suppose someone threatened him with a Q-tip tied to an old plastic spoon, and Monte Ball pissed his pants all the way to the waiting greyhound in shackles. Presumably all too eager to make things right, because he's very concerned about all of these missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So thank you, champion Monte Bullshit. You're such a big, tough drug dealer until someone turns the lights on and asks you to hold a feather and tell the truth. According to Janine's brother Vincent, when the three men came by that morning, he told them Monte was not there. They brushed past him and said they were going to talk to Janine instead. The claim is that their intention was to get her to pay the debt instead, and it became a point of argument whether they were technically robbing her during the collection of the debt. Christopher and Jason were brandishing a gun and a knife. Christopher stayed by the door to block Janine or anyone else in the home from leaving. Not long after, Vincent heard a gunshot and then saw one of the men come into the kitchen and dump garbage on their stovetop. He escaped out the back door for safety, and it's determined that Malcolm was the shooter. He had previously pled guilty and was given a life sentence, so now it was time to let the jury determine what would happen with the manslaughter charges against Christopher and Jason. Loved ones of Janine Fontaine left a Winnipeg courtroom in tears. This came after a jury sealed the legal fates of Christopher Brass and Jason Mayer. Her death has left us with a tremendous void in all of our lives. A verdict of guilty does not bring her back. Fontaine's friend Melissa Stevenson sat with Janine's family members while a 12-member jury handed out guilty verdicts of manslaughter to both Brass and Mayer in connection to Fontaine's death. Stevenson says she believes the jury's decision was just. That Janine got the last word and she got justice. And we're thankful, thankful that the process worked this time. Janine Fontaine is the cousin of Tina Fontaine. We're, we're continuing to ask to let her spirit rest. It's beautiful that she has sparked this advocacy. But let it be about Janine. Let it be about getting justice for the next girl that comes in this courtroom. The inquiry into Canada's missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls wrapped up in early 2019. It will be at least one year before the report is released to the public. It will be significantly longer to see justice for Tina Fontaine. The Crown claimed by the 30-day deadline that they would not be retrying Raymond Cormier for her murder, and the Winnipeg Police Service says they are no longer investigating any other suspects. This should not happen, not in this day and age. We have many great minds around this country. It's time to take action. Every single person, from the person in the living room to the person at work right now, to the ones who are in different countries, we all have to come together and focus on solutions and stop allowing the most marginalized people in this country discriminated against. It's absolutely not acceptable. And generations of young people are growing up and watching this. All of the young people across the country are watching this and they want to do something. And what they want to do is they want to create solutions. They want us to come together. They want us to focus on justice. 
The arc of the moral universe is long, and it bends towards justice. <laughs>